Okay, so this is Spirit of the Antichrist, and that's what we have been, uh, been talking about. And I want to just review briefly and kind of uh, highlight a couple of the things that we talked about last week, and then we'll uh, get a little bit further down the road in, in this study. The idea behind this study is that uh, we know from Scripture that the Antichrist is going to come someday, and when he does, uh, he's going to rule the world. Um, he, the, the author of the epistle of John talks about how uh, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard uh, is coming and now already is in the world. And notice that he also goes on to say, many Antichrists have come, uh, but in this last hour, one Antichrist is coming. And so uh, last week we talked about how the last hour or the last days is this present age, the church age. And I want to drill down a little bit more on that here in just a moment. But the idea behind this study is that if the Antichrist is coming someday to rule the world in his reign of terror, which the Bible says he will for a seven-year period, and if that spirit of that Antichrist is already here in this present church age, and if, as we've talked about, deception is getting worse and worse, 2 Timothy 3.13, then that means we ought to be able to look around us at the landscape kind of evaluate geopolitical events and see what's going on and sort of see how the stage is being set for the coming of the Antichrist. Now, this is not some type of sensationalistic date setting. Uh, we're simply doing what Jesus said, which is to look at the sky and you know, talk about what weather may be coming down the pike. Uh, so the rapture is the next great prophetic event to which the world looks forward. We've talked about that. And uh, this chart is one that we'll come back to again and again. And again, the chart books for anybody that is interested are out on the uh, resource table. If you're a guest with us today, we want to encourage you to feel free to pick up one or two of the resources from that table as our gift uh, to you. Uh, but we're living right now in the church age, and that church age is the last days. Uh, but someday the rapture is going to happen at a time known only to the Lord. He's going to catch up believers to meet him in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, rescuing us from this present evil age. And sometime after that, the, the Antichrist, capital A, that John talked about, is going to rise to the fore and take the helm, if you will, and take control uh, of uh, the world. So uh, if the church is the last days, then we said the end times is everything beginning with the rapture all the way through to the fulfillment of prophecy, when the Bible comes full circle uh, to the new heavens and the new earth. So the Bible tells a story of God's creation plan of the ages. It starts with creation. It ends with recreation. It starts with a sinless perfection in the Garden of Eden and comes full circle to, once again, a pre-fall Edenic uh, state. And so along the way, there are a lot of things that have yet to be fulfilled. We said one-third of the Bible is prophecy. Half of that is yet to be fulfilled. The end times is that one-sixth of the Bible that has not been fulfilled yet. It starts with the rapture and goes all the way through to the new, to the new heavens and the new earth. But what I wanted to add this week is some passages that illustrate and show us uh, what I mean when I say today, the present age is the last days. Now, one of them we looked at in our worship hour, which I'm teaching through the book of Hebrews on Sundays at 10 o'clock. And last week we looked at Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days, that's from the first century perspective, the book of Hebrews was written in 67 to 69 A.D., sometime in that time frame. So already in the first century, we were living in the last days. 
because the last days is the present church age. Uh, Peter likewise refers to the last days when he says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. And we know this is talking about the present age because in this second epistle, uh, uh, Peter says he's writing to them that they, the, his original audience, might be mindful of this point. So he's obviously talking about the present age. Later on, Paul in his last epistle that he wrote just before he was martyred, says this in 2 Timothy 3.1, Know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. So the last days is the present evil age, as the Bible calls it. It is getting worse and worse, or as Paul says, more, more and more uh, perilous. And so back to John, we know that uh, it is the last hour, and we know that many antichrists have come, the spirit of the Antichrist, this gathering cloud of deception. But when the Antichrist, capital A, comes, it's going to reach unprecedented levels. And so what we're going to do in the weeks to come is take a look at some manifestations of the Antichrist. Now last week, those of you that were paying close attention might have noticed I talked about five manifestations. But this is a work in process. I'm working on it every week and uh, putting together more information as I connect the dots of Scripture. And so far, I've come up with seven manifestations. Now, it'll take us several weeks to get through these, but I do want to start at least today on one of the biggies, and that is the spirit of pretense. The spirit of pretense. What do we mean when we talk about the spirit of uh, pretense? Uh, well, first of all, uh, let's define that word pretense. So I looked it up in the dictionary. Miriam Webster says this, it's a claim not supported by fact. Another dictionary puts it this way, a false show of something. Or a third dictionary says in English the word pretense means a false or hypocritical profession. In other words, what are we talking about? Deception. Deception, that's what we're talking about. So the coming of the lawless one, which is one of the names that we said is given to the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan, notice, with all power signs and lying wonders. In other words, his M.O. is going to be deception. And if you think about it, it makes sense from a human perspective, because how in the world would one person be able to get everybody on earth to worship them if he didn't have an incredible ability to deceive? And that's what's going to happen during the Great Tribulation, that time of uh, Jacob's trouble, as Jeremiah refers to it, Israel's trouble. Uh, it's the, the 70th week of Daniel is the completion of Daniel's 490-year prophecy. 483 years of that have already been fulfilled in the past. The final seven years will be fulfilled after the rapture. Another thing in the same passage, he goes on to say this man of sin who's going to uh, you know, work according to the power of Satan. He's going to use all kinds of lying wonders. Notice, with all unrighteous deception, he's going to deceive the world. In the book of Revelation, when things are in full sway with the one world government and Satan at the helm of it, uh, the book of Revelation tells us he, the Antichrist, deceives those who dwell on the earth. So pretense is absolutely one of Satan's uh, characteristics. Now where will this power of deception come from? Again, 2 Thessalonians says it's going to be coming directly from Satan. Uh, perhaps by Satan even indwelling him. We talked about that uh, last week. And uh, we are videoing each of these sessions. So if you missed part one and would like to go back and look at it, I kind of laid that out a little bit more detail last week 
in terms of Satan being the prince of demons. Demons can indwell unbelievers, and it seems likely that he will indwell the Antichrist just as he indwelt Judas at Christ's first advent. But in any event, whether he actually indwells the Antichrist or simply empowers him and influences him, we know that the Antichrist's deceptive power is going to come directly from Satan. Daniel put it this way, again, speaking about the Antichrist, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. By whose power then? By Satan's power. Back to Revelation 13, they worshiped the dragon, that's Satan, who gave authority to the beast. So again, the beast, the beast is the Antichrist, that's the term for the Antichrist in the book of Revelation, and uh, his authority comes from Satan, the dragon. So Satan really is the great deceiver. Uh, the Antichrist will be the greatest human deceiver in the history of the world. No one will ever have more deceptive power on earth than the Antichrist. Uh, and it will reach its highest levels during this future tribulation period. And right now, the stage is being set for this deception. So where did it all begin? If we're going to look at this growing cloud of deception, as I call it, that's getting worse and worse, and if, as I believe it is, the hour is late and the rapture could happen at any moment, it could always happen at any moment, that's the doctrine of imminency, but clearly, with each day that passes, we're closer to the rapture, right? The rapture is closer to us today than it was yesterday because we're simply one day further on. And evil men and imposters are growing worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3.13. So we want to go back to the beginning and kind of see where it all began. So as I'm going through this, remember at any time if you have a question or a comment or a thought or something's unclear, throw up your hand. I'd love to dialogue. I don't mind uh, take, uh, taking kind of a different direction and, and chasing a few rabbits. Uh, but I do get to talking fast. And we started a little bit late, so I'm talking a little bit faster. I cranked up my speed a little bit just to try to fit everything in in, uh, in the time frame. But feel free to, to ask questions. So if you go back to Genesis 3, we read, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now, who's the serpent? Satan. How do we know that the serpent is Satan? Well, that's what... that's. What Genesis 3 1 says. Say that again. Revelation and Genesis. You are exactly right. You must have a brilliant father. I mean, you must be well studied. Uh, so the serpent uh, is Satan, right? How many of you would say the serpent is Satan? Agreed. Raise your hand. How many say the serpent is the devil? Okay, good. Now, how many times is the devil or Satan mentioned in the book of Genesis? Zero. So how do we know the serpent is the devil? Because the book of Revelation tells us. And I mention this only because this is really the essence of systematic theology, of comparing Scripture with Scripture. The Bible is God's self-revelation to mankind. It has a capital A author, God. 3,800 times it says, Thus saith the Lord. And yet it was written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different human authors in three different languages. And yet, the continuity of the Bible is unmatched by any book on planet Earth. And if you compare Scripture with Scripture, which is what a good Bible student does, as you read one verse, it calls to mind another verse. You compare those verses. If they relate to one another and play off of one another, you can draw some 
conclusions. So systematic theology is simply the process of studying the Bible to see what all it says about any given topic. So if we're studying, for example, the doctrine of salvation, we would study God's plan of salvation from Genesis to Revelation, and we would learn that it's always by grace through faith, that it's a free gift, you can't earn it, it's not by works, all of those things that bear on the subject of salvation come together to form our theology of salvation. Well, right now we're talking about a theology of deception. What does the Bible say about deception? And how can we be prepared for that in this present age? And what will it be like one day in uh, the end times? And so we're studying that. Well, we go back to Genesis 3.1 and we learn that the serpent, who by comparing Scripture with Scripture we know is Satan, was more cunning. What does that word cunning mean? It's the word arum, and it means cunning, crafty, shrewd. It's only used 11 times in the Old Testament, and interestingly, it's often used in a positive sense, but here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Moses uses it in a negative sense to apply to Satan, who used his shrewdness to do what? To deceive, to deceive Eve. So if we read on in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? Well, what did she say? The serpent, what? Deceived me. Satan is more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. Now remember, Satan is a demon, and he's not subject to the physiolo physiological limitations of the physical body. It's the reason the Bible says angels are much smarter than men. Because even though we're a higher created class, we're made in the image of God, we are the pinnacle of creation, the crown jewel of creation, Nevertheless, angels, because they don't have a physical body, are not subject to those physiological limitations. That's the reason that when we're tired, we're not as sharp, we don't think as clearly. Uh, when we get older, our minds are not as sharp. And uh, you know, when we're injured and things like that, we have limitations that can affect our ability to think. Uh, Satan, who is a fallen angel, a demon, and we're going to talk about that next, the relationship between angels and demons, uh, is not subject to that. So it would follow then that he is more cunning than any other created thing. And indeed, he is. So let's, let's take a little side trip now and talk about this idea of angels and demons because as we get into Satan's deceptive plan, we're going to find that he is conspiring with two other entities to help him in this agenda to take over the world. So Satan is at the tip of the spear in this conspiracy. He is working hand in glove with his legion of demons, but he's also working with human agents. And together, this makes up the Luciferian conspiracy. Now, unfortunately, uh, this word conspiracy has uh, kind of gotten a bad name in our culture because people that don't like you to recognize conspiracies are telling you, oh, there's no such thing as conspiracies. You're just a conspiracy theorist. But in reality, conspiracies are as old as time itself. And it dates all the way back to the original conspiracy between Lucifer and his angels, the ones that followed him, when they tried to overthrow God in heaven. That was a conspiracy. So I want to give a caveat that I don't believe in conspiracy theories except the ones that are true. And we're talking about a true conspiracy. What is a conspiracy? An agreement between two or more entities to commit a crime or perform some wrongful or sinister act. Again, very common. In fact, someone has pointed out that 75% of all federal prosecutions and a large number of state-level cases involve uh, conspiracy in the actual charge. 
So it's very common to think in terms of conspiracies. What does the Bible have to say about conspiracies? Well, you come to the New Testament, and the word conspiracy is the word sunomasia in Greek. And it's only used one time in the New Testament, but we have similar words that are used frequently, and I'll show you. Uh, but the word sunomasia is used 44 times in other ancient Greek literature from about that time period. But sunomasia means a plan for taking secret action against someone or some institution with the implication of an oath binding the conspirators. In, in, in essence, they're all in it together. They're committed to accomplishing this nefarious goal, a conspiracy. A second definition in a Greek lexicon of sunomasia is a joint plan to devise a course of common action, often with a harmful or evil purpose. So this word sunomasia is what's used in Acts chapter 23. When it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, uh, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And the, Luke, the historian, tells us there were more than 40 that were a part of this conspiracy, this sunomasia. But we have other examples of conspiracy in the New Testament, most notably the conspiracy to kill the Messiah. The chief priests and scribes and elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and they plotted to take Jesus by trickery. That word plotted is not sunomasia, but clearly it is referring to a conspiracy, an agreement by two or more people to perform something nefarious. In the Gospels, John tells us from that day on, they, the Jewish scribes and leaders, plotted, again, conspired to put Jesus to death. What about the Old Testament? The Old Testament word for conspiracy is the word kesher. And it is used pretty often in the Old Testament, 16 times to be exact, exact and it means an alliance, a band, or a conspiracy, a kesher. So, for example, in Jeremiah 11, the Lord said to me, a conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a kesher, a conspiracy, an agreement by two or more entities to perform something negative or bad or nefarious. Second uh, Kings 17, the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hosea. What are we trying to do in this study? We're trying to uncover this conspiracy, shed light on it, so that we might be better prepared to recognize deception when it comes our way. Uh, again, Second Chronicles 25:27. After that time, after the time that Amaziah turned away from the fallen Lord, they made a conspiracy against him. And then one final note about this concept of conspiracy from 2,000 or even 3,000 years ago, again, pointing out that it's nothing new. Um, uh, there's another example in Thucydides, a, a Greek historian who lived about 400 years before Christ, and he defined conspiracy as a body of men leagued by oath for the putting down of democracy. I thought that was interesting, especially given our current culture where one of Satan's plans, if you understand Scripture, and we're going to talk about this in, through this, this study, is to overthrow national sovereignty. The only way he can usher in a one-world government or take the helm of a one-world government someday through the Antichrist is to destroy national sovereignty and, and, and nation-states, including democracy in America. And, uh, of course, we need to remember that America is not technically a democracy. It's a de democratic form of government, but technically we are a republic, right? Remember Thomas Jefferson said a democracy is just two wolves and sheep voting on what to have for dinner. <laughs> so, uh, and, and when you control the vote, as we're going to talk about in this coming examples of deception in the weeks to come, then you really 
democracy is a moot point if you control it. Um, so bottom line, conspiracies are nothing new. Remember the definition, two or more entities working together to achieve a harmful or evil goal. What's the greatest conspiracy of all time? The conspiracy between Satan, his demons, and human leaders to take over the world. So if you go back to my diagram, we're going to talk more in the weeks to come about the human element of this conspiracy and what that looks like and how you can trace the threads of it throughout human history. But what I want us to do for the remainder of our time this morning is talk about this demonic element of the conspiracy and sort of do a little study on angels and demons from Scripture to kind of set the stage so we're all on the same page as we go through this. So a good place to start is Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul reminds us very plainly that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, our battle is not with the Democrats or the Republicans or the Socialists or the Independents. And, and this may come as a shock to some of you, but I want to remind you that God is not a Republican. Okay? In fact, the term Republican is only, what, 150 some odd years old after the Whigs changed the Republicans and human history is 6,000 years old. So we've got to strip away these, these blinders and broaden our horizon and look at life through the lens of Scripture, not through the lens of Fox News. Okay? So we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. There's something greater at work, something far greater, and it's called principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this age and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, we believe in teaching and studying the whole counsel of God. Some people get a little uneasy when we talk about spiritual warfare and demons and angels and things. I've never been uneasy about it because it's right here in the Word of God. And as long as you keep it in balance and, and study what does the Word of God say about it, it's very helpful information because all Scripture is profitable, right? So let's take a look at what the Bible has to say about angels. A lot of misinformation out there. Angels are not the souls of deceased people. That's a terrible myth that has no basis in biblical truth. Angels are created beings. And so I want to give you another chart here that will help you kind of outline the idea of angels. We'll start with all angels. Remember, angels are created. Just like mankind is created on the sixth day, and animals and plants and everything else is created, the stars and sun and moon, angels were created. The only eternal thing is the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit eternally existed. God spoke creation into existence. He spoke time, space, and matter into existence. God exists outside of time, which is what, why sometimes it's difficult to reconcile God's eternal attributes with our temporal minds bound up in time, space, and matter. And when we come across those passages that are difficult to reconcile, such as sovereignty and free will, it's what we call a biblical antinomy. Biblical antinomy, anti-contrary uh, or against, namos, the Greek word for law, antinomy is something that's contrary to law, it's contrary to logic, contrary to what you would naturally think. And there are a lot of biblical antinomies in Scripture, like the Trinity itself is a biblical antinomy. How can you be three but one? The hypostatic union of our Lord is one. How can He be fully God yet fully man? The virgin birth is a biblical antinomy. How can you be a virgin yet have a child, right? These are biblical antinomies, and we believe them not because they make logical sense, 
but because the Bible says so. We have to run everything we believe through the grid of uh, Scripture. So we start out with all angels, and then, of course, we know that some of them fell. Uh, we know this from 1 Timothy chapter 5. It talks about unfallen angels, and Jesus refers in Matthew 25 to the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 41. So his angels are demons, okay? Let's focus first on this group right here, the unfallen angels, what I call the good guys, right? We'll start with the good guys and see what the Bible has to say about angels. We'll use the term angels in contrast to demons, but just recognize that we're talking about angels and fallen angels, right? Angels and demons. But we'll talk about angels first. In the Bible, you have several kinds of angels. First of all, Michael is called the archangel. That's the highest ranking of all angels. All right. Uh, he, as far as the biblical record is concerned, is the only one. It's conceivable that there are other people, uh, other angels, rather serving in that role, but we don't know that to be the case. And the mission of the archangel, above all, is to protect Israel. We get that from Daniel ten, twenty-one. He, the archangel Michael is called. Uh, your prince, the prince of Israel. All right, so the archangel. And then we have the chief princes. This is a group of superior angels, also from Daniel 10, uh, that is, uh, you know, have, have a sp highest ranking and serve in sp specific roles of governance over the other angels. It appears that the archangel is a chief prince and the highest ranking chief prince. So really it's one class, the highest class of chief princes, of whom Michael is uh, the leader. And then you've got special kingdom messengers in Scripture like Gabriel. Gabriel always seems to, to show up when there's a divine message from God to somebody, whether that was uh, Joseph or Mary or people uh, like that. Um, and then you've got divine attendants uh, called the cherubim and seraphim. So in Hebrew, whenever you make a noun plural, you add the im on the end. So cherubs or seraphs would be how we might say it in the English cognate, but cherubim and seraphim is the biblical uh, term, and these are one, angels with indescribable power and beauty. They are the proclaimers of God's glory, and uh, we know from Ezekiel 28 that Satan himself was a cherub, Lucifer, before he fell and became the prince of demons. Ezekiel 28:14. he was a cherub. Uh, the seraphim are also proclaimers of God's Holiness. Remember in Isaiah 6 when the seraphim were crying, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So divine attendance. So those are just a few of the kinds of angels that we see referenced in Scripture. But now let's talk about more for our purposes in this study, uh, the other side, the other team, right? So we've got you know the good angels and the fallen angels. So like the Denver Broncos and the Dallas Cowboys, all right? So the fallen angels are the bad guys. What does the Bible have to say about bad angels? Well, one-third of the angels joined Satan when he rebelled against God. And here's how we know that. Uh, in uh, Isaiah 14, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. So when Satan was cast out of heaven... He clearly weakened the nations, right? He, he made this place not better. This was not an improvement or an enhancement when Satan fell to the earth. It, it was a detriment. 
the word Lucifer means morning star or bright star. And in the context of Isaiah 14, I always like to point out that Isaiah is actually describing the fall of the king of Babylon. But I and many other scholars believe Isaiah was describing metaphorically the fall of Satan, especially because Jesus refers back to this passage in Luke chapter 10. And he, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So the context here, remember Jesus had sent out the 70. And remember they came back to report to Jesus and they said, um, wow, it's amazing. Even the demons are subject to us in your name, Jesus. And Jesus responds by saying, essentially, yes, naturally, because I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Then he goes on to say, behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and, and so forth. Um, but do not rejoice that the spiritual subject you rejoice because your names are written in, in uh, heaven. So I believe Jesus is referring back here to uh, Isaiah 14 and the fall of Lucifer. So that's why we can say with relative confidence that Isaiah 14 is talking about Satan. Um, so how do we know that one third of them fell? Well, in the book of Revelation, Notice we read the fifth angel, this is in the trumpet judgments, sounded and I saw a star fallen. Not falling. Remember, when you study scripture, grammar and syntax are important. Uh, every jot and tittle, Jesus said, is important in scripture. And John saw this star that had previously fallen. Who is that? Lucifer. And in the context of Revelation 9, he's going to the abyss, we'll talk about that in a second, to set some demons free for this final battle of Armageddon. But what does he say about uh, this star that had fallen to heaven? Uh, he goes on to say later on that the, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Uh, Revelation chapters 12 to 19 kind of comprise a, a miniature book of signs. Uh, there are no signs, the Greek word is semea, that appear in chapters 1 through 11 of Revelation, but from 12 on you see all kinds of signs, at least seven of them by my count. Four of them are on earth, three of them are in heaven, and uh, only one of them is good, but the other signs are all omens or harbingers of something evil that's about to come upon the earth during this great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath. But the first sign is in Revelation 12:2, where John sees the vision of a woman who's about to give birth and crying out in labor pains. This is a representation of Israel's pain before Christ's appearing at His first coming. And then, in chapters, in verses 3 through 6, you see verse 4 on the screen there, we see the second sign where John looks back to the beginning of history upon uh, all the way through the birth of Christ, and the stars here represent the angels that Satan led in rebellion against God. One-third of them. One-third of them. So if you go back to our chart, one-third of the total angels... Remember, angels do not procreate. There's the same number of angels in existence today as there was the day God created them. Okay? And uh, one-third of them fell, leaving two-thirds of them as angels. So as you think about this cosmic struggle that's going on on planet Earth today, and you think about the spiritual warfare that we read about in Ephesians 6, just remember that two-thirds of the angels are good angels that are serving as ministering spirits. We're going to talk about that in our study through Hebrews. But one-third of them are available to Satan at his behest, and he makes powerful use of them. Now, remember, Satan is not omnipresent. He's not omniscient, right? He's not omnipotent. He's limited. He's not God. Yeah? Is there anything where in Scripture that 
definitive that Satan is the number one power of creation under God? Because if not, Michael should have keep control of well, Michael can, and we're going to see a battle in the book of Revelation between Michael and, and, and Satan. But, uh, you know, God's sovereignty is, for right now, he's, he's allowed the earth to be Satan's domain. Satan is the god of this age, little g, the Bible says. He's the prince of the power of the air. First uh, John tells us the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. Uh, so... Uh, yes, Satan really is, for, for the tape, in case you couldn't hear the question, Satan really is the, the most powerful entity on earth today. Now, he's already been defeated, all right? He was defeated when Christ rose from the dead and defeated death, hell, and the grave. Um, but for uh, reasons known only to God and his sovereignty, he is allowing time to go by, waiting in his on his timetable to... For the trumpet to sound, the dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And then sometime after that, the Antichrist will be unveiled. He'll sign the peace treaty like we talked about last week in that chart. And, you know, all hell will literally break loose uh, on earth. Um, an illustration that I found helpful through the years, I heard it years and years ago, and I've used it many times. But if you think about what Satan is doing today, uh, in this way, I think it's helpful. So the story is about the missionary who uh, was in a jungle environment and he was out uh, away from his hut. He comes back to his hut, sticks his head inside as he's walking in and discovers a huge python in there. So he pulls out his sidearm and he shoots the python in the head and then he kind of steps back as that python begins to writhe in pain and he's it was a large snake and it was writhing around and flailing about and knocking over things in his hut. The bed was put in disarray. All the pots and pans and things fell over. And as the missionary stood outside listening, he could, he could tell it was havoc in there. But after a few moments, all went quiet and, and the serpent lay dead. Well, right now, Satan has received the mortal wound and he received it at Calvary. But he's writhing and his days are numbered. We don't know how long God is going to allow him to continue to wreak havoc, but someday he will be cast into the eternal lake of fire, which Jesus said is prepared for the devil and his angels. So when you think about it, again, the Bible tells a, a full story. We, we often don't take it in context. In fact, all bad theology and bad doctrine is the result of pulling a verse out of context and applying it in a way that it doesn't apply. But if you read the Bible in context, you understand that from Lucifer's fall from heaven, until the devil and his angels are cast into like a fire. It's a cosmic struggle. Now, there's a lot going on along the way, no question. And we're going to talk about that. God is, has multiple purposes, right? He has a purpose for Israel, his chosen nation. He has a purpose for his church, the bride of Christ. He has a purpose for angels and demons and animals and all kinds of things. But ultimately, at the macro level, it's a cosmic struggle between Satan and his angels and God and his angels. So let's dive a little further into, we got about five minutes left. I want to finish up this uh, uh, study of the fallen angels. So among the fallen angels, if you compare Scripture with Scripture, remember, no doctrine can be considered complete until it encompasses everything and anything and everything the Bible has to say about it. So the Bible tells us some more things about these demons. First of all, some of them are loose and active. Uh, we read about this. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, the principalities, the powers, and so forth. Uh, but some of them have been imprisoned. If you remember the story in Luke chapter 8, when Jesus cast out the demons that he called Legion, was the name, 
uh, from the man at the Gadarenes. Uh, uh, in uh, Mark and, and Luke's account, uh, there's actually multiple men there, two demon-possessed demon men. Uh, Matthew only tells us about one of them. They're not contradictory. Matthew's just giving only one portion of the story. But what did they say when they asked him, uh, when, they, when he said he was going to cast him out? They, Luke 8, 31 says, they begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. See, Some demons are in the abyss right now. And when we read in the book of Revelation, at the midpoint of the tribulation, Satan's going to go down into the abyss, set them free. Remember what happens at the midpoint of the, of the tribulation. Satan is cast once and for all out of heaven. Right now he can come and go. Remember the story of Job? Satan knocks on God's office door uh, or checks with his secretary. Is, is he in? Can I see God? Yeah, come right on in. He goes in and he says, I want to, you know, I've noticed your servant Job. Well, Satan is the accuser and he does that. And we have right now in this present age an advocate uh, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God and he's there for us to intercede on our behalf. But when things heat up at the end of the age, right before the second coming, Satan's going to be banished to the earth. And you think it's bad now, wait till the only domain he can even come and go through is time, space, and matter. But in that context, he goes at some point into the abyss and sets these imprisoned demons uh, free. So they are temporarily confined in the abyss. But other demons are permanently imprisoned in a place called Tartarus. It's a special prison in hell reserved for the most evil of demons, those who left their proper domain, according to Jude and Genesis 6, cohabited with women and created a race of Nephilim or hybrids. Now, we don't have time to go into that now, but I'm just telling you what the Bible says, and it's very plain from Scripture. And it was that sin where demons left their proper domain, cohabited with women, that led God to destroy the earth at the flood. That's how bad it was. And we shouldn't be too surprised by this notion because we have other examples in Scripture of angels taking on human form. Uh, in fact, in the book of Hebrews, we're later on in chapter, I believe it's chapter 11 or, or it would be 12, I believe, maybe 13. It's in Hebrews. Let's leave it at that. Uh, he, he talks about how be careful to entertain a stranger because you might be dealing with an angel and not even know it. Also, in the story of Lot, if you remember, those angelic messengers came and apparently they had taken on human form and they stayed with Lot. And remember, all the homosexual men in this town came pounding on the door saying, give us these men so we can have our way with them. Remember that? So this shouldn't surprise us, what we read in Genesis uh, chapter 6. But those demons are in Tartarus. And it's interesting, the apocryphal book of Enoch, what do we mean by apocrypha? It's a other historical book that is not inspired divinely by God, but it does give us some uh, sort of supplemental information and historical information that may or may not be true. But in the apocryphal book of Enoch, Enoch, Enoch tells us that there's another archangel named Uriel, who is actually, his whole job is to stand guard at Tartarus, uh, guarding these angels. The, uh, Uriel said to me, I'm reading now from Enoch, here the angels who are mingling with the women shall stand and their spirits becoming multiform shall treat the men with indignity and they will lead them astray to burn incense to the demons until the great decision in which they will be judged so as to bring about perfection. And there's nothing unbiblical in that information. It's not on par with scripture, but it certainly can be supported by scripture that someday 
all things are going to be made new, and everything evil is going to be cast into the everlasting lake of fire. So in the remainder, uh, or in the next section of our study, we're going to pick up with these loose and active demons that are a formidable foe, and they are agents of deception whom Satan is using today to uh, promote a spirit of deception, of pretense, that is getting worse and worse and worse. So we'll leave it there uh, for today, and we'll pick up next week with some of these kinds of demons and some of their activities. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, again, for, this, for your word, what comfort it is to know that we have a standard, a rock, uh, a place to find solutions and answers. And Lord, I pray that as we study this, it would not only give us information, but help us in the way of transformation, help us to conform to the image of your Son and our Savior, to grow in our knowledge, to grow in our grace and understanding of you. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.